John Mitchell back with you um, and Steve Sponbrook with a very special guest. Um, we've got Steve Cutter with us today. Um, Steve Sponbrook, how how are things out in your neck of the woods right now? Oh, uh, you know, we're doing well. It's uh, it's still a little weird. You know, we're in the quarantine sessions of the podcast. And uh, I don't know, this is like day 38 or something. I, I never thought I'd spend 38 straight days at home in my life. Um, it feels like Groundhog Day. It bit. feels like Groundhog But, you know, it's, it's exciting because we're getting a lot of cool stuff done. And, you know, we're... Uh, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to support those people that are out there really working hard to fight this thing. Um, so it's, it's neat to be able to, to pitch in when we can and where we can and, you know, offer our what little bit of help we can, you know, so it's been, uh, it's been a good time. It's uh, kind of ready to get back to do what we do um, face to face, but you know, that's just the way it is. And, that's a sentiment we're all feeling right now. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, I guess it's important. Everybody should know that you're in Indiana and, and Steve's up in the Northeast and I'm down in obviously in the South. So we're yeah. all in three separate areas. We're, we're socially distancing properly, but uh, and it's exciting to have Steve on the call. Steve uh, is one of our senior consultants and a great guy. And we first met through the ASHI faculty he teaches the infection prevention program. there, the two day intensive IP program. And, um, that's how we got to know one another. And in, in addition to that, he's, uh, he was part of the group that, that pinned the 188, the ASHRAE 188, which is the water management, waterborne pathogen standard. And, and so, uh, if, if you've been listening and you listened to the episode last week where we had Gordon Burl on and we were kind of talking about construction related infection control and, and specifically about monitoring and that sort of stuff. And then sort of at the end, just cause I love Gordon, I threw a a real curveball at him and said, Hey, let's talk about, you know, all this construction equipment that's been used for, um, to create temporary COVID-19 isolation units. And, you know, what's going to happen when all of a sudden we don't need that stuff anymore. And there's going to be a real push and there is going to be a real push to get back to normalcy, whatever normalcy means in our healthcare organizations, particularly getting that stuff out of the environment, make it look good. Uh, and also, you know, just get back to business as usual, because let's face it, it financially, it's this is getting tougher and tougher every day for our healthcare organizations. Um, and we just, you know, understood that, you know, you just want to run in there and grab that stuff, especially if it's been exposed for a long period of time. And, uh, you know, it kind of led to a, a, another thought of, well, gee, you know, if, if we've got spaces that have been idled for weeks now, literally, um, certainly there's there's some waterborne pathogen concerns there. And since we got you know, Steve on our team and he's the expert, I thought it'd be a great idea to have sort of a, a bonus episode of the construction related stuff and, and, and talk about waterborne pathogens and this is probably going to turn into another series honestly we're going to waterborne pathogen management um from a you know a, a normal state if you will but today we just kind of want to, you know i wanted to ask steve some questions about you know what are some of the things that folks ought to be thinking about as they start to return these spaces back to their normal use uh, from a waterborne pers pathogen perspective Good morning, Steve. Um, so certainly, as as you mentioned, as the as this coronavirus pandemic continues, it has had a significant impact on our healthcare facilities. Certainly, some parts of our our healthcare systems have been extremely busy, um, 
in our, our clinical spaces, um, emergency rooms, ICUs, etc. But on the other hand, there's parts of our buildings that have kind of been sidelined. Um, most of the elective procedures and outpatient procedures have um, have slowed down or, or stopped altogether. On top of that, maintenance staffs in hospitals have been really stressed. And right. in some cases, um, staff have been furloughed. So while our buildings have been sitting idle, at the same time, we may have slowed down on preventative maintenance. And both of these things can can really have an impact on the way that our the waterborne pathogen issues um, develop in, in hospitals. So I, yes, I, I mean, that, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say one of the things we, we've been fielding a lot of calls uh, from clients and from folks that aren't clients, but that know us and uh, asking. And one of the, the underlying themes is, okay, we've got scarce resources right now, really scarce resources. And we've got all of these testing maintenance you know, things that we need to take care of. We can't do it all. What, what do we do? And, you know, our, our recommendation across the board is, you know, risk-based analysis. In fact, we put a tool out, you know, several weeks ago on the COVID landing page related to ITM across the board for the maintenance folks to use. But particularly, uh, you know, this is one of those things where uh, it's not going to be so much something that uh, ongoing they need to be addressing, but certainly before they bring spaces, almost a recommissioning, if you will, is I guess is what I'm thinking. Exactly. The If I had to say one concept, it would be flush, flush, flush. Um, or I guess that's three concepts. Uh, if, <laughs> you know, this, this, there's this concept of water age in a building, and every building's different, but there's a length of time from when water, a certain quantity of water comes into the building through the, through the meter before it gets used um, either at, in the bathroom, in the shower, a piece of equipment, a cooling tower, um, or whatever. Um, and that length of time is what's called water age. Well, certainly as a building slows down, um, that, the age of the water in your water system increases. So what does that mean? Um, disinfectants dissipate over time. So it's a simple concept of the longer that the water in your building water system, your piping system, um, the longer it sits there, um, the, the less disinfectant that's going to be in that water. And at some point, and it, and it happens fairly rapidly, um, the, the disinfectant is basically gone. And once that's happened, um, then it, there's a great opportunity for waterborne pathogens that are in our water to amplify. So flushing um, is, is what we do for any area that's not in, in high use to be able to bring fresh water with fresh disinfectant levels into those parts of the water system. So, yeah, you, um, you taught me a valuable lesson not long ago. We were, I had called you about a construction site and with some questions. And, um, you know, I, I guess I sort of knew this, but not really that, you know, because we were talking about specifically about chlorine testing, residual chlorine levels at the distal locations 
uh, in certain areas of the hospital and that uh, that chlorine actually gets used up as it does its job, right? So, uh, and this is what you explained to me, once it comes into the building and it starts, you know, doing what it's supposed to do, which is eliminating these pathogens, it gets used up. So there's going to be a point where it is no longer, there's no longer enough there to be effective and we're going to start to see growth. And this is one of those times where certainly as those pipes, they're not true dead legs, but uh, there could be areas that have been idle long enough. They might as well be. Exactly. And the, if you think of a water system, there's parts of that water system that are circulating, um, parts of the hot water system. But then there's the runouts of the pipes that go from that circulating loop out to the fixture, to the shower, to the bath, to the sink. Um, those never circulate until somebody opens the faucet and lets water flow through that. So that's in essence um, a dead leg by design that can't be eliminated and it requires that, that those systems get used, um, that the sink gets used, the shower gets used um, in order to bring in um, fresh water and fresh disinfectant. Um, a, a well working water management plan through its risk assessment will identify parts of the building that don't see um, active flows at times, or maybe have a, a procedure for when you shut down a, a unit for a period of time, what your flushing program might be. Well, that's exactly what needs to happen. Um, ideally would have happened throughout this period when the building's kind of at an idle state. Um, yeah. But if, um, because you didn't, your maintenance staff are doing other things. Those things might have been neglected. So the, the important thing to do at this point, um, and you don't need to wait until the building starts getting used, but as soon as you have resources, um, start flushing um, the water system. Uh, start from where the water comes into the building and then flush outward towards the distal sites. Start with a cold water system um, and then follow with a hot water system. And, and a rule of thumb would be perhaps do this weekly at all yeah. points to ensure good flow. So how long would you flush those? I mean, is there a rule of thumb on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And the real answer is you flush until you get water with a disinfectant residual returned. Um, but we don't know how that will be if you're not actively testing all the time. So maybe 30 minutes until it gets to the hot hottest point if your water system is circulating at 120 and you certainly wouldn't want it to be circulating at less than that then flow the hot water until you get to 120 degrees or or at the temperature that your hot water system is that ensures that you've got fresh water um, to the outlet yeah that's a really good People typically people would say a half an hour, 15 minutes to a half an hour. But as I said, it really depends on the water system itself and the length of the runouts. Yeah. So it's more than just going and, and turn it on the faucet, letting it run for a second, close it. And that, that was kind of the point of the question. And that, um, you know, hopefully a lot of folks have really good water management plans because that's been a focal point here for the last year or so, well, really since the 188 became a standard. Um, but assuming that, cause you know, we still see quite a few that have water management plans on paper that are, 
I don't, yeah, they're, they're better on paper than they are in the real world, I guess. Um, and so for those people out there, uh, this sort of flushing protocol, I think is, that's a great solution because it doesn't really rely on, uh, as you know, there's no benchmark requirements to, to understand, you know, what your normal residual chlorine is in those locations. You know, if you flush it long enough, you should get back to a point where the water is going to be safe. So, uh, I mean, that's great advice. And I'm thinking that, you know, long-term we'd certainly, uh, I think we need, there's a need to put together a, a few more discussions about waterborne pathogens in general and just for some of those things, like you just said, a, a risk assessment. Well, how do you do that risk assessment? What are, you know, what are some of the things you look for? Um, so, you know, you know what spaces to identify as high risk and needing a little more attention than the other areas of the building. So I don't want to get into that today because we get to spend a couple of hours talking about that probably. Um, you know, but certainly, uh, you know, we know there's going to be a push to do that. Um, so you know, in terms of, of, of waterborne pathogens, what would be the, your greatest concern if, if there are areas that haven't been properly treated the, the concern is that as um, as water sits stagnant, that biofilms can develop, and biofilms are if we think of them in terms of it's it's the the house if you will that the waterborne pathogen lives in within the water system. There's free flowing pathogens in your water system, but they they every, it all begins with the bio, development of a biofilm. Um, and that's literally adhered to the wall of the pipe. Right? Yeah. If you were Typically. to take a pipe apart and, and put your finger in it and then feel a slime, um, that's really the basis of a biofilm. And they, they develop um, with good water flow and good flushing programs. They won't develop or they'll develop... Um, well, let's just say that with good water management, you minimize the risk of biofilm development. Once it sets up shop, though, and you get biofilms, they become very difficult to get rid of. So the, the concern is the longer that um, the water system sits stagnant, the more likely um, it is that we're going to get biofilms developing. And once we get to that point, um, it becomes very difficult to uh, to manage that. The yeah, the treatment, I'm sorry, the treatment remediation requirements, once you get to that point or not, they, they sound simple on paper, but they're not as easy to accomplish when a, a ongoing hospital that's got patients and people in, you know, uh, so, well, that's, that's yeah, I mean, so one of the, I guess the biggest concern that I have is if you're, you know, someone's listening to this and they don't have a real good water management plan, or maybe it's not as good as they want it to be, um, you know, simple steps towards, and then, you know, helping ensure, I mean, we're never going to say it's going to be a hundred percent, but helping to ensure that once we're back in there, we don't, have a, a situation that's, you know, where we're putting patients and our staff at risk for these waterborne pathogens. And it sounds like to me, uh, it's a pretty simple thing. We just, we, we need to identify those locations and start flushing those. Um, and, you know, 
certainly with hot water temperature, everybody should have the ability to, to test for temperature. But when it comes to, to chlorine residual levels, if they do have that capability, but they haven't necessarily been using that gear, you know, I, I know there's not a magic number, right? That's not what we're going to look for. But can you give how would you go about if you did have the gear and you wanted to make sure that you were getting to a point where the, you had the disinfectants in your water? Would you do that comparison? What would you look for between what you're getting into the building and what you're getting at the distal locations? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, but it's a tricky question. It varies um, based on the disinfectant that you use. Um, free chlorine residuals are affected by temperature, so you're less likely to see high or the normal um, chlorine levels at your hot water system. Um, yeah. But if you're flushing your cold water first and then you're flushing your hot water, you can be pretty sure that the chlorine that's present um, in the water system as it's coming from your municipality um, is going to be present in the water system. And that's that's probably um, the best that you're going to be able to do. Certainly test to make sure that the disinfectant level at the cold water inlet to the facility is what you would expect it to be, that there's a there's a, um, a level of free chlorine available. That's most municipalities will put more chlorine than is necessary to just disinfect the water to the point where it gets to your door. They, they'll, you can expect to see some residual of disinfectant that's there for the building to use. Um, so working with your municipality to understand what your primary disinfectants are um, and what you could expect to see at the door um, gives you the baseline that you're talking about. I think the other thing that's that's important to note is that it's pretty low tech. We're talking about flushing. Um, it's not yeah. a, it's not a trained maintenance worker that needs to do it. Um, I think there's a great opportunity to network with the EVS staff um, that are in rooms um, periodically um, doing their cleaning activities. Certainly that's an opportunity to go in just simply turning on the fixtures while they're doing some of their normal routines and then shutting the fixtures off when they leave. Um, simple, simple things like that are, are, uh, are probably as effective as anything. Yeah. And I mean, that's not really a huge burden on them to do that. Uh, but we have effective time to, to flush. I think that's a great suggestion. You know, one of the questions sort of popped in my mind is, you know, we've got a lot of eyewash stations that are co-located with sinks and that sort of thing. And if we're flushing the eyewash station, do we still need to flush the sink faucet? Um, my guess is yes, would be a good answer to that because there's still some some plumbing that's unique to that faucet, but I'll let you answer that because I could be wrong. No, I think you're you're right. Any place that has a water use um, that we're going to put in, especially eyewashes that, that um, we may have kind of fallen down on our on our weekly flushing test um, or flushing protocols with eyewashes just because of stresses, other stresses that staff have, um, but certainly getting all of those maintenance activities, um, making sure that they're done. I mean, we didn't talk about cooling towers or, or clinical systems that use water or 
um, ice machines, um, all of those from a maintenance perspective are going to have to be dealt with. Again, that's probably um, discussions for another time, but there's a whole world of equipment that uses water that needs to be right. uh, looked at from a maintenance perspective. Yeah, and I don't want to I don't want to go too long on this one because I know people are strapped for time and and they probably just want to hear real quickly what they need to do to or need to be thinking about um, getting back up to speed. But I'm, you mentioned eyewash. I mean, eyewash. You mentioned ice machines and ice machines. That, that's a serious concern, and they've likely been sitting there with ice in them for weeks now. Uh, you know, that there's going to be. That's one of the things we definitely don't want to overlook, right? Right, definitely. I, I think you could follow manufacturers' recommendations for the periodic maintenance, where you you know you have to unplug the machine, drain the ice, and then disinfect the reservoirs and the water systems, and then flush them before returning them back to use. Different machines are different manufacturers, and you certainly follow um, manufacturers' recommendations, but um, but they should be serviced if they've been sitting idle. Yeah, I mean, that's something I'm glad you brought it up because I actually had, uh, hadn't really thought about ice machines until you mentioned it. But, uh, and that's, you know, that's my fear. That's one of the reasons I wanted to put together this kind of quick version of the podcast was that, you know, there are people out there, you know, God bless them and working really, really hard. And when you're, when you're really at the end of your rope, it's easy to miss items like that. And, uh, and I'm almost wondering if we want to try to put together a checklist for the website, uh, that, I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. I should have probably saved that for a discussion offline, but um, just a, a bullet point checklist that's not comprehensive, certainly, but just some ideas to jog people's memories as they start to bring these things back online. But um, Steve, I really appreciate you, you joining this kind of at the last minute. We just kind of pop this idea out and so let's, let's get this thing done. And um, I do think we want to uh, hopefully put together a, a more normal, I like hate to use the term normal, but a, a, a water management series that kind of dovetails what we've done with the construction risk uh, assessment mitigation series that we're kind of wrapping up right now. Um, because I think a lot of people are struggling with that. And there's a, there's a whole lot of folks out there that, that want to help that some of them have uh, a different sort of perspective and maybe some different agendas, but, you know, in terms of, just here's some good solid advice on how to develop a water management pl- program and implement it in your hospital. I think that'd be a great series. And if you're willing to join us for a few more, we'd love to have you. Sure. If you, so, like I say, if you, if you do have a water management plan, now's the time to leverage that risk assessment that you did um, to, and, and use that because it would have identified all of those at risk um, elements and, and that can be your checklist. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Steve, I really appreciate it. John, I, I guess this pretty much wraps up the intent of this one. I, uh, I hope we'll be willing to, to and able to get some more in-depth discussions about water management out in the real near future. And, you know, and, until then, we just hope everybody can stay safe. Yeah, compliance for the sake of a patient with the Steves. Yeah, um, Steve nice Square. Steve Square is nice to have. Yeah, you know, I've been working with Steve for a long time too, and uh, man, just one of the, just a cool guy, just the kind of guy that you just uh, you kind of want in your hospital helping you with um, with taking care of patients. So, man, Steve, I'm, I'm appreciate you being on today, and um, appreciate you listening today. If you're out there, especially during the quarantine, um, 
really appreciate all of you in healthcare who um, are taking care of just a really strange time in our history. And I um, hope we can help. Thanks for listening today. Bye.